0: Reaching up, reaching over, and reaching out. We are New Life Christian Fellowship. For service times, articles, or recordings of our weekly messages, please visit us online at www.nlcfchurch.org. This message is brought to you by Kevin Weeb. Before we get into the message this morning, I just want to give a quick congratulations to Jake and Susie. I know they're not here this morning, but they... Um, had a son this week Walter Isaac born on Wednesday November 16th also um, although they were up last week a big thank you to Jimmy and John Friesen and everyone else who helped with the projectors and the rest of the sound system that is now installed and being made use of Um, as you can see the screens are much brighter and easier to see for all of us so big thanks to everyone involved in that We are going through the book of Ezra, and today we finally get to meet this character whose name is on this book. Before we get into the passage this morning, I want to begin with a story. I came across this story this week, but I could not find out who the author was. A husband and wife didn't really love each other. The man was very demanding, so much so that he prepared a list of rules and regulations for his wife to follow. He insisted that she read them over every day and obey them to the letter. Among other things, his do's and don'ts indicated such details as what time she had to get up in the morning, when his breakfast should be served, and how the housework was supposed to be done. As you could imagine, this was not much fun for the wife. After several young, long years, the husband died. As time passed, the woman fell in love with another man, one who dearly loved her and who she loved dearly. Soon they were married. This husband did everything he could to make his new wife happy, continually showering her with tokens of his appreciation. One day, as she was cleaning the house, she found tucked away in a drawer the list of commands that her first husband had drawn up for her. As she looked it over, it dawned on her that even though her present husband hadn't given her any kind of list, she was doing everything her first husband's list had required anyway. She realized that she was so devoted to her second husband out of sheer love and affection for him that her deepest desire was simply to please him, not out of obligation, just out of love and affection. So she ended up doing these things for him without even thinking about it or realizing that she was even doing it. I have a second story. This one um, told to me by one of my professors in school. I've shared this one before. His name was Randy Holm. He's retired now. I had the privilege of studying under him. And when he was a Bible school student, he was one of those students who didn't like rules. And, well, he actually kind of loved them, and he would push the boundaries of them. So he would read the rule books on the school rules. And his school had dress codes that they had to wear certain things. But what he noticed in the dress code is it didn't say what kind of shoes he had to wear. They had to wear dress pants and they had to wear ties and shirts. So he went to the thrift store and would buy the ugliest combinations of dress pants and shirts and t- ugly ties. And because it didn't say what kind of shoes he had to wear, he, where he he would wear like steel toe boots or those kinds of things to class. Well, wouldn't you know it? The very next year he showed up and they amended their rule book to include what kinds of shoes he had to wear. Well, one day he showed up at the cafeteria and because students were removing. Um, plates and forks with food to bring to their dormitories, the cafeteria was running low on their um, plates and bowls and forks and cutlery and such, so they had made a sign that said not to remove these things from the cafeteria, but they didn't mention spoons. And so when he noticed that their sign on the list of things not to remove from the cafeteria, it never said spoons, so he went to the thing of spoons and Pulled them all out and stuffed his pockets with spoons and walked out of the cafeteria with them because, ah, it's not against the rules. He was following the rules to the letter, but not the spirit. (laughs) However, as he tells the story of his multiple shenanigans in school, one day he came to meet a young woman and they began to see each other. And all of a sudden, his desire, his appetite for these kinds of shenanigans was gone. And as he puts it, what the law could not accomplish over the course of years in his life, love was able to accomplish in less than two weeks. The shenanigans stopped. He didn't want to wear these awful outfits anymore. He no longer had a desire to push the boundaries on the rules anymore. What does your worship of God look like? Does it more, look more like the relationship this wife had with her first husband, just simply obeying these rules out of duty, or more like the relationship she had with the second husband? Simply wanting uh, to please them out of love and affection, not even worried about rules or regulations, but finding yourself simply wanting to make them happy because you love them. Does it look more like rules in law, or does it look more like a relationship filled with love and grace? What does your worship of God look like? Well, God has given us his word, but the only reason for us to view the Lord like the first husband is because someone has given us the wrong impression of him, because God is not like that at all. Yes, the Lord is to be honored, revered, and respected, but God has shown you such great love, mercy, and grace that our worship and devotion can stem not from being scared, but it can stem from thanksgiving and can be rooted not merely in duty, but rather in grace As we will see in today's passage, the temple in Jerusalem had been rebuilt and God sent Ezra to begin teaching the people his word and to begin restoring and renewing the proper worship of him in Jerusalem. And as we will see, Ezra's journey is this great combination where it's not that Ezra's effort in this isn't required, it's not that Ezra's role in this is completely removed, just because God's grace is present. But it's that the grace of God and human effort in this are like two sides of the same coin. And his effort stems out of God's grace. We're going to be reading um, parts of Ezra chapter 7 today. This Ezra was a scribe. Who was well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel? He came up to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king gave him everything he asked for, because the gracious hand of the Lord his God was on him. Ah, by the way, I've underlined the parts where it talks about the gracious hand of God being on Ezra. You'll see it pop up a number of times. Some of the people of Israel, as well as some of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, traveled up to Jerusalem with him in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes' reign. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in August of that year. He had arranged to leave Babylon on April 8th, the first day of the new year, and he arrived at Jerusalem on August 4th, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. Now this is the words of Ezra now in Ezra chapter 8. So we're skipping, skipping over a little bit some of the lists and those sorts of things that we see in, in the book of Ezra. So now we're jumping into Ezra chapter 8 um, in verse 15. There's a, there's a big list at the beginning of chapter 8. Um, about the different families that came along with him. And then in chapter 15, it's, these are the words of Ezra now, before he got to Jerusalem. He says, I assembled the exiles at the Ahava Canal, and we camped there for three days while I went over the lists of the people and the priests who had arrived. I found that no, not one Levite had volunteered to come along. Now, this is, this is important. Okay? The temple of God had been rebuilt. Ezra is coming back to Jerusalem to teach the people about the word of God, to teach them about what God requires of them, right? what proper worship of God would be like. Right? God is holy, God is just, God is loving, God is merciful. God teaches all about all of who he is in his word. And Ezra is coming to teach them about all of this. Also the warnings that exist in the law about how people are supposed to live. And how they can live in a right relationship to God. And, and lessons from history about how their people had strayed from God, right? And, and the mistakes that had been made. And so to teach them all of these things lest they fall into those same patterns once again. So this is all kind of part of Ezra's role coming back to Jerusalem. So they built the temple and the Levites, they were the people that were supposed to manage the temple, so he comes back he's going over the list of people who volunteered to come back not one Levite had volunteered to come along all these other people came along but no Levites they're coming back because the temple's rebuilt they're coming back because they're going to renew the worship of Israel they're coming back so he could teach them about proper worship of God and there's no Levites to run the temple that's no small problem so Ezra says in verse 16. So I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob. Or, uh, uh, there's two names twice. I guess there's two people with the same name. I guess there's Mennonites with the same name. So th- I guess that makes sense. Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, uh, Zechariah, and Meshullam, who were leaders of the people. I also sent for Joerub and oh another Elnathan, who were men of discernment. So, we've got a lot of Johns, they've got a lot of El Nathans. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Um, I sent them to Edo, the leader of the Levites at Cassiphia, to ask him and his relatives and the temple servants to send us ministers for the temple of God at Jerusalem. So he sends four Levites to come so that they could run the temple. Verse 18, here it is again. Since the gracious hand of our God was on us, They sent us a man named Sherebiah, along with 18 of his sons and brothers. He was a very astute man and a descendant of Mali, who was a descendant of Levi, son of Israel. They also sent Hashabiah together with Jeshiah from the descendants of Merari and 20 of his sons and brothers and 220 temple servants. The temple servants were assistants to the Levites, a group of temple workers first instituted by King David and his officials. They were all listed by name. And there, by the Ahava Canal, I gave orders for all of us to fast and humble ourselves before God. We prayed that he would give us a safe journey and protect us, our children, and our goods as we traveled. For I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us and protect us from enemies along the way. After all, we had told the king, Our God's hand of protection is on all who worship him, but his fierce anger rages against those who abandon him. So we fasted and earnestly prayed that our God would take care of us, and he heard our prayer. I appointed 12 leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 other priests, to be in charge of transporting the silver and gold, the gold bowls, and the other items that the king, his council, his officials, and all the people of Israel had presented for the temple of God. I weighed the treasures as I gave it to them and found the totals to be as follows. 24 tons of silver, 7,500 pounds of silver articles, 7,500 pounds of gold, 20 gold bowls equal in value to 1,000 gold coins, two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. And I said to these priests, you and these treasures have been set apart as holy to the Lord. This silver and gold is a voluntary offering to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. Guard these treasures well until you present them to the leading priests, the Levites, and the leaders of Israel, who will weigh them at the storerooms of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. So the priests and the Levites accepted the task of transporting these treasures of silver and gold to the temple of God in Jerusalem. We broke camp at the Ahava Canal on April 19th and started off to Jerusalem and the gracious hand of our God protected us and saved us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived safely in Jerusalem where we rested for three days. On the fourth day after our arrival the silver, gold and other valuables were weighed at the temple of our God and entrusted to Merimoth son of Uriah the priest and to Eleazar son of Phineas, along with Josabad son of Joshua, and Noadiah son of Benui. Both of whom were Levites. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the total weight was officially recorded. Then the exiles who had come out of captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel. They presented 12 bulls for all the people of Israel, as well as 96 rams and 77 male lambs. They also offered 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was given as a burnt offering to the Lord, The king's decrees were delivered to his highest officers and all the governors, and the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, who then cooperated by supporting the people and the temple of God. So now we get to this part. We get to this part where they're at the temple and they're finally offering sacrifices to the Lord, worshiping in the temple of God. Right at the end of this long journey, right at the end of these troubles that they faced along the way. The first thing I want to draw our attention to is that God protected Ezra and the others on their journey. Um, Ezra had told the king about how God protects those who are faithful to him. And so then he didn't want to bug the king about sending soldiers to protect them because he had just boasted to the king about how God will protect them, <laughs> you know. So then he thought it would be inconsistent to then go tell the king, um, but, you know, can you give us soldiers? So instead they fasted and prayed and said, God, will you protect us in this instead so that it wouldn't tarnish their witness in front of the king. And God did protect them as they journeyed to Jerusalem. It wasn't quite like today where our roads are, you know, the most dangerous thing is a car accident, which is dangerous enough as it is, but there are bandits and thieves and all kinds of other dangers along the way. Back in those days, traveling was very dangerous business. So the temple had been built, but as we already mentioned, there were no priests to work there. And this is a big deal um, it's in the temple of God, the priest had to be from a specific family line. Um, this is something that changed with Jesus right in In first Peter, we read about the priesthood of all believers. We read about how in Christ we all become a part of the priesthood, and we all um, can come before God. You know, when Christ died on the cross, the curtain was torn in two in the temple. This curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And that Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go in and only only once a year at that. But when Jesus died, the Holy of Holies was torn in two. The Spirit of God was, like, no longer just in the temple. I mean, it was... Not like the Spirit of God ever was just restricted to the temple. But it was this symbol of, of now the Spirit of God is no longer only in the temple, but the Spirit of God is coming to all of us. That the Spirit of God dwells in each believer now. And so now we all carry within us, as followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. We are, as Paul says in Corinthians, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are the temple of God. So each believer is, in the words of Peter, a priest. There's a priesthood of all believers. But that was, this is before the time of Christ. And so it was very, very important that the Levites be the ones to work in the temple. You may remember a story in Samuel when King David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. The Philistines had captured it and they're bringing it back and the, the Ark um, is on a cart and it's being you know brought by some animals on a cart and it, it hits a bump and it's like about to tip over and this one man reaches out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant but no one was supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant unless they were a Levite who had gone through some purification rituals. But this man was not a Levite. As soon as he touched the Ark of the Covenant, he died. And David was very upset. And most of us read that passage and we get quite upset because this seems so graceless. It seems so pointless. God, why would you take his life? He was trying to help you. But, do you remember God's words to Saul? I desire obedience, not sacrifice. We should be obedient to God in the way that He wants things to be done. Right? God had told them how to go about this and they're taking matters into their own hands, into their own way. Trying to do things in a way other than the Lord had instructed. Doing things in ways without listening to God's ways. And that's what the big deal was. He had shown them how to do this told them this was the job of the Levites and instead they took matters into their own hands to do it a different way and there were there was a cost to pay for that which certainly is hard for us to reconcile at times um, causes us to, to wrestle with, um, with with the Lord through some of that because it, it, it's, it's tough stuff But it has to do with the the arrogant attitude of David and and the leaders of Israel at the time, certainly. But God had given the honor of working in the temple to the, the Levites. They didn't have a share in the inheritance of Israel. Everyone else had received portions of land, of the promised land, but not the Levites. Their inheritance was the honor of working in the temple. That was their inheritance in the promised land. That was their honor, their privilege, was to be the workers in the temple. And so when Ezra arrives on the scene, he's going through the people who volunteered to come, and there are no priests. There are no Levites. And he realizes, this will not do You know, he was an expert of the law. He would have known about what had gone on with David. He would have certainly known about this story where the man had reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant and lost his life. He would have known how serious of an issue this was. And how are they going to go about worshipping God properly without the Levites and temple servants to actually carry out the work of the temple? Everyone else had signed up, but where were the Levites? Where were the people who were supposed to be serving in this way? This is actually where, um, in the church now, since we are all, this whole thing, the priesthood of all believers, this is where the church suffers greatly when any one of us steps back from our work, steps back from doing our role in the church, because the church is never about just one or two people or, or just a group of leaders in the church. That's where we all are actually supposed to get involved. So Ezra called the Levites back to service in the temple of God. He calls them back. He, he sends people to get in touch with the Levites, and as the scriptures say, because the gracious hand of God was upon him, the Levites answered this call. And the Levites come back to service. Another thing we see is that the leaders cooperated with Ezra once they reached Jerusalem. This was right at the end where the governors and other leaders cooperated with him. Once again, it says the gracious hand of God was upon him. The purpose of Ezra coming to Jerusalem was to teach the people the word of God. This was one of the the primary ways that we can actually get to know who God is. It is how we can hear about how God has shown love to his people through the ages, that we can learn about his great love and mercy. It also teaches us about right and wrong to help prevent the chaos in the world that we see in in things like the book of Judges where it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So when everyone just does what is right in their own eyes, we very quickly come to a place of anarchy and chaos. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. And so Ezra came to teach them the word of God, to teach them about what is right and what is wrong. And that um, th- this is actually something that I've come to really appreciate about um, when, I, when I read of Jewish authors and Jewish theologians and their perspective on the Old Testament. Because sometimes in Christianity, we look at the Old Testament, and we think, okay, Old Testament is law, the Old Testament is wrath, and the Old Testament is so filled with, um, uh, you know, these kinds of stories like the one I talked about, where, where God smites the man who touches the Ark of the Covenant, and we're like, oh, I don't like that, that's uncomfortable. But when, when Jewish people read that, yes, it's uncomfortable for them too. But even for like um, in the early church, they didn't have the New Testament written yet. The only Bible they had was the Old Testament. And yet they declare that God is a love of grace and mercy. And yes, they look at everything through the lens of Jesus. And so we cannot just like forget about Jesus either, of course. But when we look at the Old Testament, through, uh, it, it's really helpful to, to think of it in a Jewish perspective because... It's not just a book about grace, or about about wrath. It's actually also a book about grace, right? It's a book about mercy. It's a book about the love of God as well. And sometimes it's a little bit harder for us to get there, but it is embedded in every single story that we read. And we, we can lose that sometimes if we only spend time in the New Testament and not in the Old Testament as well. But one of the amazing things about this, this part of Ezra, of the book of Ezra and about this part of the story in particular is how the grace of God and human effort go hand in hand. There, there's kind of these, these two hmm, two ditches if you want to call it that. If life is a road we can get stuck in one ditch or the other ditch if we say that we're saved uh, or if we say that if we say that it is only grace that matters and we don't have to do anything at all ever for anything or anyone right and we can live however we want do whatever we want sin however we want as much as we want and god's grace is okay you know Then I think we've kind of missed the picture of of what God is calling us to. Um, Paul talks about this when he says, Should we just sin all the more so that grace may abound? By no means. And he just rebukes that kind of thinking completely in Romans. Then on the flip side, on the other ditch, we can get into this ditch of legalism where we forget completely about grace because we are not saved by our works. We can never do enough good works to save us. Never. Because that's not what saves us at all. So there's this ditch of legalism where what we do is all we focus on. Yet, it's undeniable that the Scriptures do call us and demonstrate for us the importance of human effort. And that's one of the beautiful things about this story that we could miss if we read through it too quickly. Right It emphasizes again and again and again that because the gracious hand of the Lord was upon me, we accomplished this. But it also shows us what Ezra did. It shows us the risks he took, the things he did, that he actually called the Levites back, He sent people out to come back, and then they took this risk of this dangerous journey without the, the help of soldiers from the king. He actually taught the people, he did the work of teaching. He offered sacrifices. Now, when we say I sacrificed something, that means we gave something, right? We gave up something. It was ours. It now is no longer. We gave it up for, in this case, the Lord, right? So it was works that Ezra did for God, right? So it was works that he did, but there's also the grace of God throughout, throughout all of this. Four times, just in the passages we read, it mentioned the gracious hand of God was upon us. Plus, it mentioned another time that the Lord heard our prayers. Just kind of again and again and again as we read, the gracious hand of God was upon us. But it's a whole story about the work that Ezra did, right? But he only accomplished what he did because the grace of God was upon him. You take the grace of God away, he would accomplish nothing. You take Ezra's effort away, and he would have accomplished nothing. They go hand in hand. So what about for us today? If we are to renew our worship of the living God, it is always based on the grace of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. This is what it is based on. The grace of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. Because our works are nothing that we can boast of. The foundation of everything starts with the grace of God. This is always where it starts. The grace of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. First John 4, we're going to read two, two passages here, verse 10 and then verse 19. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then in verse 19 it says, we love because he first loved us. God loved us first. Whatever we do is in response to that. This is how it works. The grace of God was given long before any of us were ever born. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to read just two of the verses that John read for us this morning verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this, it is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. We'll get to verse 10 in a minute. If we are to renew our worship it is always based on the grace of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. Right? That's what our salvation is based on. Our salvation is not based on our works. We cannot be saved from our work because of our works. Our salvation is given because of the grace of God. And that we must be very clear about always. But that doesn't mean that we're off the hook from doing anything. That doesn't mean that it's not important that we put effort in. If we are to renew our worship, it will also require effort on our part. That doesn't mean salvation is something we earn. It means that our worship of God will take effort on our part. How many of you have ever seen a marriage that takes no effort? (laughs) That's a funny idea. A marriage that takes no effort. Marriage takes work. Relationships with kids take work. Friendship takes work. Any kind of relationship or friendship at all takes work. That's what relationships just require, right? It takes effort on both people's part to make a friendship or a relationship of any kind last. So too with our walk with God. Our salvation is not based on our work, it is based on the grace of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. But if we are to renew our worship, it will also require effort on our part. Just like we see in the story in the book of Ezra. The grace of God was upon him, but he still put in effort on his part. So if we are to renew our worship, it will require effort on our part. James 2, 14 to 17 puts it this way. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? What kind of, what, can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. James is very blunt in how he puts it. He's not saying that the faith or that the good works save you, but he's saying a true faith, a true faith in Christ, will produce these works. This is the natural byproduct of our faith in Christ. It will change the way we behave. It will change the way we act. It will change the way we interact with people. And I've seen this worked out in this place again and again, for which I am proud and thankful and blessed. Now we come back to Ephesians 2. We read verses 8 and 9. Now we're going to read 8, 9, and include verse 10. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit from this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Okay, good. We've got this. Salvation isn't a reward. We can't boast about it. It's based on the grace of God. Check. But then he says this the very next verse For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. For what? So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Right? If we've ever wondered if grace and works go together, we don't need to wonder anymore. Paul spells it out for us very clearly in these three verses, puts it together side by side in a way that it's just indisputable. We're not saved by our works, but God's planned them for us. Not that we're saved by them, not that there's something even burdensome or toilsome for us, but because they're good. The the thing about work, okay? Here's the thing about work. We often view work through the lens of sin. Let me explain that. We view work through the lens of sin. Okay. In the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that. We, we know this. God created the Garden of Eden. He created Adam and He created Eve. And before sin entered the world, they worked. They had work to do. They took care of the garden. When everything was perfect in the world, humanity still had a job to do. They had work to do. Then sin entered the world and their work became toil their work became toil and so the whole view of work shifted from something good to something toilsome and so we often view work through the lens of sin of that, that point where sin entered the world we view work as through the lens of sin we view it as toil But when we look at what God has created us to do in Christ Jesus, it's not toil. It's good. He says it's good things that he planned for us to do. It's not something we should look at through the lens of sin. It's something we should look at through the eyes of God. That is good. He created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So we need not look at the work God gives us as toil. We don't need to look at that through the lens of sin as a burden. We can look at it through the lens, through the eyes of God as something good. I quoted this um, sometime in the last few months, but I'll quote it again. It's by Dallas Willard. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. If you ever come to a point where you feel like you're doing good works to earn your salvation then you need to take a step back and just reevaluate for a second. So we're not earning our salvation here. This is not about earning the grace of God. No. Nope. In your marriage, if you ever feel like you have to keep working harder, keep giving more flowers or keep doing more chores or doing more stuff to earn the love of your spouse, then I suggest your marriage is at a very difficult spot and you should seek some help. Because a healthy relationship, a healthy love is not based in earning affection or love from one another. You know, God loved you so much that even though we had done so much wrong, that we owed him so much, that he paid the price for that for us. Even though there was a debt to be paid, he paid that cost for us to make it right, to wipe the slate clean so that we wouldn't have to earn anything, so that we wouldn't have to earn his love and affection. We wouldn't have to earn his grace. He gave it freely but that doesn't mean that our relationship doesn't take effort on our part. After he has given so much for us, after he's given everything, how do we respond? I'm just thinking about this, this now. I wish I would have pulled a picture up on the screen. Have any of you seen, um, I, I'm sure most of, you, most of you have, there's this famous painting um, where, where God is reaching down from heaven reaching out to touch man. And then there, there's a man leaning there and he's got his hand out, but he's just kind of like, eh. <laughs> he's not really reaching very hard. His, his arm's just kind of like this, resting on his knee. You know, he's just kind of, just hanging out there. God's reaching as far as he can. And if the man would just reach out just a little bit further, he could touch the hand of God. But he's not not very concerned about it. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, I'll reach out a little bit if, if I can. Uh, I'm not going to try very hard. (laughs) God has done everything to make a way for us. All we have to do is open the door of our hearts. As it says in Revelation, that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And we have to open the door, right? It's not that we earn our salvation, but a relationship takes strength Two people to work at it. It can't be done with only one person being involved. And so it takes us to play a role as well. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. We do not earn our salvation. But it does take effort to be in this relationship with God. You see here again, it starts with what God has done and moves out from there. Just like in our passage in Ezra, again and again and again, it says, because the gracious hand of God was upon us, we could do this. Because the gracious hand of God was upon us, we could do that. Because the gracious hand of God was upon us, we could travel safely. Again and again and again. It started with the grace of God and moved into what they did from there. And this is the story of our salvation. It starts with the grace of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. Because the grace of God saved us from our sins when Jesus died on the cross. Because through the grace of God, Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. Because through the grace of God, we all had a chance to hear about that salvation through Jesus Christ. Because of all he has done for you be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he finds acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Just as Israel needed to relearn and renew their worship, so too there are times when we must renew our worship and walk with God. God is always there waiting for us when we go astray or when our hearts have grown cold. His grace has already been given to you. Will you come to him? Will you once again give your yes to God? Will you once again come back to a place of doing your part in your walk with God? Will you stretch out your hand just a little further to touch the hand of God? I will leave you this morning with the words of William Cowper from one of his hymns. Sin enslaved my many years and led me bound and blind. Till at length a thousand fears came swarming o'er my mind. Where, said I, in deep distress, will these sinful pleasures end? How shall I secure my peace and make the Lord my friend? Friends and ministers said much, the gospel to enforce, But my blindness still was such I chose a legal course. Much I fasted, watched, and strove. Scarce would show my face abroad. Feared almost to speak or move a stranger still to God. Thus afraid to trust his grace long time did I rebel. Till despairing of my case down at his feet I fell. Then my stubborn heart he broke And subdued me to his sway. By a simple word he spoke, thy sins are done away. Let's pray.